You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 37. Today we're asking the question, how do audits influence intentions to improve practice? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. David, what's today's question? Thanks Drew. Today's question is, how do audits influence intentions to improve practice? And this week when I was looking for an episode that we might do, I was running a few different search strings in Google Scholar like we, like we talked about in episode 34, and then I realised that we haven't discussed audits yet in an episode. In fact, Drew, I'm not sure if we've actually discussed safety management systems or incident investigations or a lot of the other safety work practices that we have in our organisations. But anyway, today we're going to talk about audits. And when we talk about audits, it's a very broad term. You know, there's different types of audits, external audits, internal audits. We can audit systems. We can audit individual behaviour. I had a bit of a look at the dictionary definitions, Drew, and they just go something like this, in quotes, an official inspection of an organisation normally by an independent body. But, you know, a quote like that isn't that helpful. So in this episode, our working definition is going to be something like the review of an activity against a specified criteria. Before I go any further, Drew, do you have any opening comments about, you know, how you see or how you feel about the role of audits in safety management? Well, I think we're a safe for all ears podcast, so I can't express my full view of audits in the language I'd prefer, David. What I will say is that audits come up most often in my own research. Whenever people are trying to justify why they're doing something that they know they shouldn't be doing, the answer is you know, to any nonsensical safety practice is almost always a story about an audit that happened and required something that was previously informal and working quite well, needed to be turned into something that was legible and documentable to an audit process. And so it turned from a effectively working informal practice to a very well-documented paperwork practice. So, do I think we, for our listeners who are familiar with the safety of work model, they'd see this audit sort of fitting into that category of demonstrated safety work, which is sort of directed back towards some stakeholder as opposed to directed towards risk reduction of work. And full disclosure for me from the outset, I did uh, find myself in an unpopular situation in a room of safety professionals, Drew, at a conference a few years ago when I was presenting about safety clutter. And when I was asked about what are the types of things that, you know, are safety clutter candidates, I suggested to the room that they should straight away go back into their businesses and remove all their safety audits um, because they're probably unlikely to be adding any value to safety. And the reason that I held that view, Drew, at the time was because, you know, when I reflected on all of the companies I'd been involved in and all of the audits that I'd seen and been involved in in some way, I couldn't really identify a time that those audits had specifically directed, you know, a, a, an improvement that I think was material to safety or to work that wasn't already in train or wasn't already known or already underway by the organisation. But look, with that as a as a backdrop, I did learn a bit by going through today's paper. So I'm interested to get your views as well on, on the research that we're going to talk about today, Drew. Yeah. And I really like the way you framed the question, which com comes out of the way this paper has looked at it, which is you're trying to look for the long downstream effectiveness of audits is actually fairly hard. But there's a sort of nice, simple, intermediate question, which is just you know, how do people intend to respond when an audit says that they've done badly? Yeah, you're right, Drew. I think any 
any try to do a direct link between an audit and an improvement in performance, however you thought about measuring that, was going to have a lot of uh, intermediary steps. And when we talk about the model used in this paper, we'll show what those steps look like. But I really also wanted to talk about an audit process that looked at work as done, not just an audit process or a study about do the operational procedures match the you know internal or external requirements. So is my procedure as good as the rule says the procedure should be, regardless of what actually happens? So really want to look at practice audits. And, you know, in some ways, the audit process that we're going to talk about today, Drew, could be considered, you know, a very well-designed behavioral observation. I think there's some hidden advice in the podcast today, and we'll try to make it a little bit explicit at the end about, you know, what this paper could also potentially teach you for your behavioral safety programs in your organization. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that we'll see as we go through the paper, is that you know I'm we're looking at an audit of cardiac rehabilitation, which is not something I'm an expert in or that you're an expert in. But certainly superficially, this looks like a very, very reasonable evaluation, particularly since a lot of the audit is just benchmarking against other people who do exactly the same sort of work. Yeah, so Drew, let's dive into today's paper. I tried to do, I know, I, I tried to find a paper that I thought had a reasonably sound research design with both observational and experimental methods. But like always, I, I learn a lot about research design from you in all of these episodes. But anyway, I think I think it's a pretty well-designed a well-designed study. Let's dive into it. The paper for today is titled, How Do Audit and Feedback Influence Intentions of Health Professionals to Improve Practice? A Laboratory Experiment and a Field Study in Cardiac Rehabilitation. Drew, the paper was published in 2017 in the British Medical Journal of Quality and Safety. It looks like the BMJ have their own quality and safety journal, mainly around um, healthcare and medicine quality and safety issues, and a lot of writing in there about patient safety research and outcomes. The authors are Walter Gouda, Mariette van Engelenvelhul, Sabine van der Veer, Nicolette de Kerzer, and Niels Peake. Now, the authors are spread, Drew, across two universities, the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and the University of Manchester in the UK. The uh, stated objective of the authors, Drew, and the BMJ does this with its with its papers, it's got a really specific design for its abstracts. And it starts with the objective. And the objective of the authors was to identify factors that influence the intentions of health professionals to improve their practice when confronted with clinical performance feedback. And the authors said that this is a really essential first step in the audit and feedback mechanism. So even though this is a really specific setting within the healthcare industry, Drew, like you said, neither of us are cardiac rehabilitation specialists. I think there's you know, endless lessons in this research for the audit process itself, but then also how we, uh, we think about what people are going to do with the audit outcomes once they're, once they're delivered. Yeah, and no, I think that's a fair model to say that you know, the necessary first step for an audit to be effective is that the person who has been audited has to want to improve the specific things that the audit has called out. And so if we look at, you know, are there factors that increase or decrease their likelihood of even wanting to respond positively to those audit requests? That's the, you know, regardless of anything else, that's the necessary first step that it, the audit, at least people have to acknowledge that it's legitimate and have to want to respond positively. Andrew, the um, literature review of this paper was really interesting. And I like it when, um, and we like it, I think, when the papers do a reasonable job of reviewing the literature. And the authors talk about that the healthcare industry is increasingly adopting this audit and feedback strategy to improve the quality of care. And they review the literature and they find that something like 75% of the time, studies that look at audit processes on practice and feedback processes don't result in any change. And I'm not quite sure what's going on here. 
because if you've got an objective measure of a clinical guideline or an, or an expert opinion about how something should be done, and you've got specific practice data from with well-trained professionals about how their performance matches that clinical guideline or expert data, and you give them the results and you give them the benchmark and you give them the way to improve and the means to improve, three quarters of the time, nothing happens. And I think that's a, um, a fascinating finding in the literature. Not surprising, but still really interesting. Yeah, I, I decided to sort of take a bit of a personal approach to how I thought about this. And I've tried to imagine someone auditing something that I'm doing and that I think I'm good at. And so I'm probably going to give a lot of teaching examples through this paper because anytime we get these feedback on cardiac performance, I'm thinking, what if someone came into my classroom and did a benchmarking exercise about my teaching? How would I feel about what they had to say? And the idea that 75% of the time the response to someone criticizing my teaching is get stuffed does not surprise me in the slightest. We're talking about people who are respected professionals who think that they're doing a good job, who know that they're doing a good job, have been doing a good job for many years, are being audited and told these are the specific areas that someone says you need to improve. I don't think it's that surprising that the answer is more often than not, no, get stuffed. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good story, Drew. And I wonder if it's more than 75% when the safety professional comes in with the safety audit to the manager. But our listeners can tell us their experience of um, of intention to change or you know the difference between maybe genuine intention to change and stated in intention to change following safety audits in their organization i guess the big surprise is that people are that honest that you know these these aren't just 75 percent of people don't change a lot of these are intention to change so these are people saying they don't even intend to adopt the recommendations well i think there's actually a mix of studies here some of these are actually about the effectiveness of improving quality of care so maybe these are people who do say superficially, yes, I accept the audit results, but later on they don't actually result in a change in practice. Yeah, and and so Drew, they through the literature, um, the background literature, the authors identify a whole range of mediating factors that determine whether or not you know feedback provided through an audit process is going to result in change. And they identify things in the literature like who delivers the feedback, whether it's a supervisor or a colleague, um, whether it's delivered once or more than once, whether it's delivered verbally or in writing, whether it includes explicit targets or an action plan, action plan, sorry, or direct improvements. So there's all this stuff, but the researchers say that, you know, we've learned all this stuff in the research, but they, although we know these factors from previous studies, it's not helped us underlie helped us understand the underlying mechanisms. So Drew, I'm interested in your in your take on this because um it's sort of an indirect reference to our manifesto paper on reality-based safety science from episode 20. And the quote goes, reviews attempting to deepen this understanding have equally failed to do this because most audit and feedback studies were designed without explicitly building on any extent theory. Yeah, I, I love that quote. Um, and it conveys to me a picture of lots of people doing very naive experimental work, doing trials that ignore the theory. And then other people trying to build a theory of what works and doesn't work based on the results of these experiments. But without the feedback loop, none of the experiments are getting any better at testing or expanding the theories. So we just get more and more inconsistent experimental results and more and more theories built on top of these inconsistencies. Yeah, so Drew, they, the authors started with control theory. Um, and it's, it's quite an old theory in relation to feedback loops. And you know, the authors talked about you know how many different disciplines have studied control theory from mathematics to engineering to behavioral science 
And according to control theory, you know, feedback prompts its recipients to take action when their performance does not meet a predefined standard. So basically, um, if you're falling short, then the person will change their performance to bring it into line with with a standard. And they highlight sort of three mechanisms to make this feedback improvement process effective. And and if it's if it doesn't work, so I suppose Drew, in those seventy five percent of studies where the feedback didn't result in improvement. Control theory says it's going to be one of three reasons. An information intention gap, which is basically that the feedback fails to convince the recipient that the change is necessary, which is like, I don't agree with the need to change. Second is the intention behavior gap, which is where intentions are not translated into action, which is I want to change, but I can't. Or a behavior impact gap, which is that the actions do not yield the effect, which is I did change, but it didn't change the results how it was intended to. So Drew, this information intention gap, intention behavior gap, behavior impact gap sounds fairly fairly logical to me. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a simple but straightforward model. If I take it back to that example of, you know, someone comes into my classroom and says, you know, the problem, Drew, is that your PowerPoint slides don't have nearly enough animations on them. So, you know, first explanation for why there's no change is I say, that's a dumb idea. I'm not going to do that. Of course, there's going to be no change. Your second explanation is I say, yeah, that's a good idea, but I never have the time to get round to actually putting in the animations and transitions, even though I agree it's a good idea, I just don't manage to do it. And the third possibility is I say, yes, fantastic, I'm going to go through and put little animated icons on every one of my slides, and the students hate it. I think those are sort of like, that covers all the sort of range of main possibilities as to why the feedback doesn't result in improvement. Yes, that's the whole theory, Drew. And so, but this study, or these these the two parts of this study that we're going to talk about now, are really trying to address that first part of it, which is the information to intention gap, which it is is the audit uh, feedback resulting in an intention to to change. I suppose their base hypothesis from this will be if someone gets feedback that their performance doesn't meet a standard, then those are the things that they're going to want to change based on control theory. So, Drew, it actually helps to talk about the design of study two first. And the second part of the research was a a longitudinal field study where they enrolled 18 individual cardiac rehabilitation centers in the Netherlands and collected data across 14,847 patients. So they basically, um, it's what they call a cluster randomized trial, but they they assigned different, uh, these different centers into into different, um, I suppose, experimental conditions. Each of the 18 rehabilitation centers got four quarterly feedback reports in combination with educational outreach visits. So the researchers went into these uh, centers, you know, once a quarter for, for a year. And these centers were either given performance feedback on indicators concerning psychological results of cardiac rehabilitation or physical uh, results of cardiac re- rehabilitation. And like you said, Drew, all of the benchmark data came from the sample population across the 18 centers. So they developed these indicators with a group of cardiac rehabilitation professionals. They got all this data. They worked out what the uh, performance should look like or what they what they felt the performance um, should look like with these indicators. And then they assigned red, yellow, green traffic light indicators to represent how an individual center's performance on that indicator ranked in relation to the overall population. And so, Drew, they, they sent these feedback reports through a web-based systems, they turned up during these visits once a quarter. They worked with the quality improvement team, which involved you know, clinical uh, professionals. It wasn't like a quality department. And they asked, they facilitated a process or they observed a process where the teams developed their improvement plan. 
and then each visit they updated their plan accordingly. Drew, any any comments on the study design, this 12-month study design? I think it seems really quite reasonable. I mean, obviously, you have to do this real-world field study using clusters rather than individuals because this is a team performance scenario. There's no point in like singling out one individual when, in fact, most of the improvements have to be made at the level of the centre and most of the data exists at the level of the centre rather than at the level of the individual. So, yeah, trying it out in... It's obviously a very realistic scenario. This is how you would actually try to do a quality improvement. In fact, I almost got the sense that that was the primary purpose, was actually to try to improve quality, and that the research was a secondary purpose, but still appropriately built into the improvement. Yeah, Drew, and it appears as though they they wanted to do a laboratory study as well. So across these 18 centres, there was you know a population of 132 uh, clinical practitioners who had been involved in at least two of these uh, outreach visits. And they asked these people, these 132 people, if they'd like to come into the lab, essentially, and you know participate in an individual experiment that's, that's sort of based on the, the same study. Now, 41 people said, yep, I'm up for that. I'm going to come in and, and help you out on that. So what they wanted to do, Drew, which I really like, is they wanted to reduce the impact of organisational and social factors on the participants' decision-making around performance feedback. So all of the constraints that might exist in group settings in the workplace or with organisational resources available, they wanted to try to try to take that out. And they were giving people hypothetical situations. But it's interesting, these hypothetical situations were actually the exact 40 or 50 reports that have been provided back to the centres, but just shuffled up and then given to the individuals in the lab. So they could actually see the way that the performance feedback reports from the audits were dealt with inside an organisation. And those same reports were dealt with by individuals during the lab study. So Drew, I actually think that's a good way of actually trying to eliminate some source of variance in terms of those other factors, which people could just say, oh, well, the practitioners made those decisions because of their organisational setting. Yeah, no, I I think particularly as a complement to the field study, this is a really interesting little experiment. I think we should also sort of just point out exactly what it is that they're being asked to do here. So they're getting these reports that have got both an indicator, so some measure measure of safety or quality, that might be a process indicator, so an indicator of what the centre does, or it might be an outcome indicator, some particular statistic related to the patients. These have been benchmarked to show whether they tend to be low or high compared to other centres. And then the participants are asked to pick which ones of these indicators are the ones that they're going to build into their hypothetical action plan. And they're asked to justify. So if there's a low indicator that's like showing up red that they decide not to build in, they're asked, you know, why did you not want to build that one in? And they're also asked if they pick a high indicator. So in other words, something that's already showing good performance, it's showing green. Why have they picked to try to improve that one? Andrew, they gave them in, I think, one of our other episodes, one of our experimental episodes um, of the commercial sea fishing captains. It was one of the earlier episodes. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but they gave them three or four choices. So, you know, if people selected something that was low, they said, tell us why. Is it A, it's not a relevant aspect of, you know, quality cardiac rehabilitation, B, improvement's not feasible, C, the indicator score is already high enough, or D, other, and tell us what the other is. And they did a similar sort of set of responses or standardized responses for if they selected something that was high. So, Drew, let's dive into the results. So, basically, in the lab study, 75% of all indicators were incorporated in improvement plans. 
So if you gave people feedback on 100 things, then in the lab, they would put 75% of those things into an improvement plan. In the field, they would only put 39% of indicators into improvement plan. So the practitioners on their own wanted to improve, let's say, twice as many things as they arrived at in groups within organization setting. Not a lot of explanation for, for why these things are the case um, in the paper, but Drew, any thoughts about why in organizations only half the things might be put into a plan? I think this one might just have to do with the ideal versus the possible, that in an experiment, you design an ideal plan. In a real world, you're much more conscious of organizational constraints. If there's a disagreement, it's more likely to end up in compromise rather than just doing everything. Yeah, and I think, Drew, that's probably, um, you know, might be a reason for for the second piece. So for each 10% fall in the indicator feedback, so say from 80% to 70% to 60%, you know, every 10% that that performance fell in the lab resulted in a 54% increase in selection for improvement, whereas in the field, it resulted in only a 25% increase selection for improvement. And I think that probably matches the first result in that not as many things go in, which means there's a higher threshold for things to make their way into the plan. I think there's also an effect here that in the field, there's obviously other information which is going to affect the decision other than this particular report. And so hypothetically, that's all the information you have, whereas in the real world, you've got other data that might not be included. So other reasons for including things or not including things. Yeah, absolutely. True. And so well, the trend sort of continued with the benchmark data. So think about the, the red, yellow, green traffic lights. So these scores of, let's say, amber or red or low or intermediate on the benchmark were ignored, say, a third of the time, 34% of the time in the lab. But they were ignored almost half the time, 48% of the time in the field, which means that, again, Drew, you know, someone not deciding not to do something with an amber or a red performance indicator half the time within organizations, you know, kind of suggests there's a, there's a bit more going on here than just what the result looks like against the performance benchmark. It suggests that legitimately or not, there's some explaining away happening. Someone's being told that you are below average and the response is not, I have to improve, but, oh, that's because of some reason that we know about that means that we don't need to try to improve. Yeah, Andrew, I think one of the interesting um, sort of tangents that I drew out of this, which is what you were just saying there, is um, if you've got the auditor who's behaving a bit like the lab study, which is what are all the things that I think need to improve as the auditor, when it hits the auditee in the field with all of those other considerations, you know, a tangential conclusion from this might be that your auditee is probably only going to agree with half the stuff that you say as an auditor. The other possible experimental effect is just that the people in the lab had to justify where they weren't doing it. And the people in the field didn't have to put down just a, such a stark, no, I'm not doing this and this is why, which, which may, you know, the different dynamics there, the legitimacy of saying no, and the experiment might have led people to just go ahead and do it. Yeah, and it's something I don't recall us knowing, Drew, whether the explanations came after the plan was completed or or allowing people to to change, to get the opportunity to change, and then that could, could have well being a factor. Um, but you're right, when you remove those constraints, you're probably more than likely to be more ambitious about what you're trying to do. The feedback was spread. So when we go to the lab, so you know the lack of intention to improve practices that were benchmarked as low, 30% of people sort of said, yeah, well, the score's already high enough. So even if it's red compared to other centers, I consider it already good enough. 25% was that the improving the indicator was not feasible. 
which maybe goes to the second thing, which is it doesn't matter whether I want to do it or not. We we can't. Improving the indicator lack priority, 25% or 15% was not a relevant aspect of quality um, clinical care. So fair, fair spread across those types of reasons, which is we're good enough already, can't do it, it's not a priority, or it's not even an important issue in the first place. And, and I think we can probably lump together the um, lacked priority and was not relevant as sort of two extremes adding up to almost half of the explanations here. One of them is, I just don't think this indicates quality at all. And the other is, oh, yeah, it does, but it's not really an important indicator of quality. And then for Drew, for, for the findings that are green or high against a benchmark, the reason for people putting their in their, putting them in their improvement plan anyway, 82% people just said, well, this is green, but it's an essential aspect of quality clinical care, and it should belong in everyone's improvement plan, which kind of flies a little bit hard in the face of audits, which is that you know your auditee really might want to continue to focus on the things they're doing that's green, and all of the audit try all that the audit tries to do is get them to respond to the reds and the oranges. Whereas what we're saying, you know, in those previous results, Drew, is that half the things in those red and oranges they're they're not interested in anyway, and they might want to take that 50% of resources and put it towards things that the auditor has said is already green. Yeah, David, this one really had me thinking about the purpose and intent of audits, even if they like worked brilliantly. Then, you know, I think if someone said, you know, why do you do an audit? They'd say, oh, it's to show you what to focus on, to show you where you're currently doing well, where you're not doing well, and where to improve on. But in fact, it seems like, at least according to the people who are being audited, they're already focusing on certain things and not focusing on other things. And the audit is telling them what they are focusing on versus what they're not focusing on. And it is just sort of saying, yeah, well, that's exactly right. These things are green because I think they're important and I'm focusing on them. These things are red because they're not important and I'm not focusing on them. So it's not helping them reprioritize. It's just confirming what they're already prioritizing. Yeah, I like the way that you've thought about that, Drew, and played that back. And I guess then if the audit process tries to change that prioritization, then it's probably failing at the first hurdle to go from the information to intention gap. Because if then if the audit's trying to direct all of that resource to, you know, to improvement, including some of the resource that's currently maybe supporting the reason that certain certain indicators are green, then unless the reprioritization is is agreed with, then that's the 75% of cases where there's nothing where nothing happens. It's almost like you need a pre-audit step to get people to agree with what's on the audit and to agree that it's important. And then when it comes back red, they might agree that it's important. But I think through that practice organisations or listeners will probably say, but we do that, we do entry meetings, we we agree scope of audits uh, with the people who are being audited. But I think the extension of what you're saying there is don't agree the scope, kind of agree what, it might almost be more of a process step at the end, which is um, here are all the observations from the audit. Now, how do we together make sense of this in terms of you know what needs to be done? Not just let the auditor just go, Here's, this is red, this is green, this is the area that you need in action, and, and where's your management response? I think scope alignment would happen a lot, but I'm not sure that sort of sense-making alignment at the end would happen at all. Yeah, to, to play devil's advocate, I think perhaps some auditors would say, well, we don't really want to give people a chance to explain away the bad results. You, know, This is fair, this is the same audit we're giving to everyone. It would be a misuse of the audit process to let people have a whole bunch of reds and to let them then decide, oh, the red doesn't matter or the red can be explained away. But yeah, yeah let, let's move on to talk about the sort of author's conclusions here. 
still be a fascinating conversation for an organization to be brave enough to talk like that though. Oh, yes. <laughs> so look, the authors conclude that there's four mechanisms that relate to this information intention gap. And so Drew, maybe I'll describe each one and we can have a bit of discussion about each one. So the first is that um, absolutely measured clinical performance and benchmark comparisons do influence professionals' intention to pr improve practice. So if you give someone feedback uh, against a set of indicators and you do give them feedback that their performance is low against those indicators, then that provides input to change. Not 100% of the time, like we've said, but it does influence uh, influence change. And benchmarks, from the author's point of view, benchmarks might trigger an intention to improve more than the underlying score. So whether it's 60, 70, 80, 50% is probably has less influence than whether it's red, green, or yellow compared with some standard or some benchmark. And I think, Drew, they also highlight from other research that using coloured traffic lights uh, has also been previously shown to increase the influence of decision making. Like saying something's good or bad is not as influential as saying something's green or red. Yes. So, so I think if you um, if you want to label your audit as we're doing this as a general motivational tool to get people to agree to improve, then it doesn't really matter that it doesn't work 100% of the time or people don't agree with 100% of the indicators. The overall message here is that, yes, doing this process and giving people this feedback had an impact on which sections they selected. So the process of doing the audit had an effect. The process of doing the coloured benchmarking had an effect on them picking particular things. And so, Drew, that's, that's the audit process. And the second finding is that professionals have their own view of what constitutes quality of care. And I think more broadly, what we said earlier is you, you as a teacher, Drew, have your own view of what constitutes good teaching. And so... Professionals ignore somewhere between one third and one half of all benchmark comparisons. So one third and one half of the feedback you provide people during an audit is going to be ignored because they disagree with the benchmark or because they deem improvement unfeasible. They don't consider it an important aspect of work. There was more variation, Drew, in this finding amongst individuals than teams. So when you put teams together, they kind of probably come to, you know, they're probably not as different in their views as when you actually look at a difference between individuals but that's just that's a group effect i think we can say that that would happen pretty much in anything and interesting in the field study drew the team selected process indicators rather than outcome indicators so and it was there was quite a big difference it was something like um five times less outcome indicators in the field than in the lab and the authors conclude that it's probably because when you're in a real organization you don't always feel like you can commit to improving the actual outcomes that the patients have but you can commit to following a process uh, inside your clinic. And Drew, that might that reminds me, just as I'm talking about this now, as uh, methodology as a social defence. I, I think this would be familiar to anyone who's sat through more than one performance evaluation at work. There, there is no way that you want to commit to a 10% increase in sales or to have five papers accepted over the next year or to have a drop in injuries by 20%. But hey, you definitely want to commit to you will have that report written or you will perform at least three audits because these are things under your control. And you want to commit to things that you can control, not things that may be affected by factors that are just outside your control. Andrew, the third finding, which we haven't spoken yet about in the results, was that improvement intentions tended to remain similar in subsequent audit and feedback uh, iterations. So when they did the four uh, action planning sessions over four quarters, Something that was previously on the improvement plan one quarter before was something like 10 times, or it was 10 times more likely to be selected 
on the subsequent improvement plan. And they kind of, the, the researchers concluded that either actions weren't completed or that the indicator was still showing a problem. So even if actions were completed, they really didn't understand the problem. So they weren't actually addressing what the causes of the, the indicator result was. And they concluded that in their minds, at least over this 12-month study, quality improvement in organizations progresses really slowly. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, David, I think they're over-interpreting their own data there. All the study really shows is that people's ideas about what they should improve are reasonably stable. It doesn't even necessarily show that that is caused by... The, the, the authors seem to think this is caused by a lack of improvement as opposed to just consistent preferences. And I think the fact that people had so many things in the green that they still thought were important is direct evidence that that's what's going on. If someone thinks what's really important is that we have better team meetings, then just the fact that they've managed to have better team meetings isn't going to change the fact that they think that that's important and something they should still be focusing on. Yeah, I, I um, hadn't thought of it like that, Drew, but now that we draw a few of those pieces of data, yeah, I could agree that that as a hypothesis, that could be what's happening happening with that. I mean, yes, it, it could it could be that they keep coming up with the same improvement topics because nothing's getting better as well. Certainly lots of people have just good intentions that they haven't managed to carry out, so they report the same thing at three quality meetings in a row. Yes, I'm still planning to get around to improving that. I really wish I had time to do it. Yeah. The fourth conclusion that the paper draws is that professionals give priority to improving data quality. So we also didn't mention, about, mention this in the findings, but in the study, if there was not sufficient data or that particular centre didn't report that data. They just got given a grey circle next to the indicator instead of a red, yellow or green. And that grey was almost more likely, I think it was more likely to be in the action plan than a red indicator. And they concluded that, you know, professionals really give priority to improving this data quality. If there's no data, professionals really want to see the data before committing to whether or not they need to improve. And the authors say, they make another statement here, which might be an overanalyst of their data, but they say, this is a bit of a, not a problem, but, you know, if we're using audit to work on data rather than using audit to work on work outcomes, then surely it's diluting the impact of the audit. Yes. And I think this is exactly one of the big problems with audits is this is the demonstrated safety versus actual say, or versus like safety of work problem. In that the easiest audit things to respond to and the most likely ones to be responded to are requests to provide evidence rather than requests to improve work processes or requests to improve work practices. And that, that's exactly what this is saying, that it's much easier to fix a non-compliance about evidence than to fix a process or to fix an outcome. And so that's why these things get targeted. Yeah, Andrew, I, you know, we talked in last week in episode 36, I think, about leading and lagging indicators, or it might have been episode 35, sorry. In there, I've been involved in a lot of conversations in organizations that says, oh, we're not going to focus on this particular issue yet until we've got 12 months of data so that we can baseline it or understand the problem. So we think it's important and we're prepared to wait a year until we've got good data quality before we start doing something so that we can show that the improvement, so we can show the improvement we've made. And you know, I'm not sure that's the best way to approach understanding your organization and making improvement. So Drew, if we move to practical takeaways, there's a couple here. The first one is that, you know, audits and performance feedback, um, providing people with performance scores and benchmark comparisons will influence their an individual practitioner's intention to improve practice. So my comment at the start to say audits are mostly, you know, not that helpful. I suppose 
I'd have to rethink that in the context of if you can provide performance feedback to an individual about their performance of their work, you know, against some kind of benchmark, it will have an impact on their intention to improve their practice. Yes. I mean, one way to interpret that is to go back to the original question, which is, if the process is breaking down, where is it breaking down? Is it breaking down at the intention to change? Is it breaking down at the capacity to change? Or is it breaking down into the change actually causes a positive impact? And I think this study has shown that it's breaking down a little at the intention to change, but you can't explain lack of effectiveness solely from that because most audits in this process did result in an intention to improve and an intention to improve that was guided by the audit. Andrew, I think going back to your teaching teaching example, so if, if someone comes in and gives you a whole bunch of feedback on your teaching, then you'll possibly have, based on this study, an intention to improve maybe half of the things they tell you. Yes, and particularly the ones that I already thought were important and I was already in the green for, and particularly the ones where all they're really asking me is for more evidence of my teaching rather than actually changing my teaching. Okay, perfect. So secondly, secondly, okay, so if we move on from those intentions, there is substantial variation in these intentions because professionals either disagree with the benchmarks, either deem improvement unfeasible, or do not consider the indicator an important aspect of their work. Which is really quite a reassuring practical takeaway, which is that people do show judgment and they're not going to do something just because an audit tells them to. So in fact, that's less cynical than I'd usually think about audits. The people are going to be selective in how they respond based on what they genuinely think is important. Yeah, and I think if you think about the person being audited in this context as being, like you said, a professional and an experienced and an expert in their role, then they're going to have they're going to have views about what quality and and what priorities look like for them, whether they're a uh, cardiac re- rehabilitation clinician or whether they're a pilot or whether they're a safety professional or whether they're a manager. And so if you bring them audit information and they don't agree with the criteria or the benchmark or they don't have the resources or ability to do anything about it or they don't consider it important, then you're right, Drew. I think you know, you'd expect a person to say, I've got no intention to do anything about this. Uh, which leads on to the third one, which could be a practical takeaway or couldn't, might not be, depending on how you sort of read the available evidence, which is the authors certainly think that these disagreements impede the effectiveness of audit and feedback interventions. And I actually don't think we know that for sure. There's sort of two answers here. One of them is the professionals are being selective. And so the audits are, in fact, very effective the professionals are screening out the dodgy audit recommendations and just implementing the good ones. That would be great. That would be increasing the effectiveness. Or the other possibility is that these are genuine feedback that they should be responding to, but they're not accepting it. And so the audit is in fact being less effective. And this this particular study can't really tell us which it is. Are they screening out the dodgy recommendations or the ones that they should be following? No, but Drew, I think that's a fa- that's a fascinating research question because if we think about audits that many of our listeners will be familiar with in the safety audit space in their organisation, the auditor the auditor has kind of like the the power and influence and and say over the auditee most of the time. So a hundred percent of issues you know need to be taken up and need to be responded to. So it'd be really interesting to um, to do some research around just whether it is whether audits are really effective when people only do half the things that the auditor tells them to do. Yeah, would, would, would optional non-compliance 
improve or harm the effectiveness of the audit would be a really good question. And we could just do a study where we just give people that choice to just reject audit recommendations and see what difference that makes in how much gets implemented. So, Drew, I think, um, I mean, I'd love to know from our listeners if they have a process which lets uh, the auditee just say, thanks, I've heard you, but no, I'm not going to do anything about it. So that'd be interesting. Other things I would be interested to hear from our listeners as well is if they've got audit processes that control for any of the aspects we've spoken about. So do um, auditees get to really agree with um, criteria and benchmarks, you know, beyond just the scoping of the audit, just exactly what the measurements are going to be and, and what red, green and yellow is going to look like and do they agree with that? The second would be, you know, beyond closing meetings, how much agreement and sense-making and discussion around audit scores and outcomes is done before, you know, final conclusions are drawn from the audit? And then any other important, I suppose, anything else someone wants to sort of share about how they've seen audits really be important or relevant to the improvement of, you know, safety management in their organisations? So, David, our question for today was how do audits influence intentions to improve practice? What do you reckon the answer is? So, Drew, in it, the answer to that question from this study would be that providing performance feedback against a benchmark will influence practitioners' intention to improve practice, but only if they agree with the benchmark, they agree that the aspect is feasible to improve, and they also agree that the aspect is an essential aspect to the quality or safety of their work. I think that's actually quite a good takeaway, David. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. You can reach us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 